This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in worship. Go ahead and remain standing as half of you have already sat down. My, you can stay seated. So, so some of us, hey, why are we standing when we read the Bible? Is that because your former pastor used to do it or others? Actually, it's Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5. I'll let you study that on your own. But there was a moment when Ezra showed up and he started reading from the Word and he did something outside of the norm for the ancient Hebrews. He stood on a platform they built almost like this and he, everybody stood at the reading of the Word. So I'm not going to read the entire book of Ezra. In fact, I'm in the book of Acts. So if you're in Acts with me, it is an interesting passage, Acts chapter 19. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen. You can follow along. This is what it says, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, le- the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to, came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is uh, a fun passage. In fact, I don't know that I've heard it preached on a whole lot. Let me just tell you this. It may be one of the strangest stories in Scripture, especially for anybody like me who grew up in a very Baptist world. There are certain stories we just don't get a lot of teaching on. And let me tell you that if you're looking for a synopsis, if you're looking for how this one can be wrapped up, here's what it is. This story involves a popular preacher and missionary, miraculous handkerchiefs, profiteering from religion, satanic panic, identity confusion, violence, public nudity, and book burning. And if you, let me just say, we didn't do this one on the vacation Bible school felt board when I was a kid. And I've never seen the VeggieTale reenactment of the uh, book burning and the naked people running through the city. So this is, of course, VeggieTales, they don't wear clothes. But nonetheless, don't get me off on that one. It's an interesting story. It's a strange story. And it's one that you've got to figure out, how does this even fit into what we need to know today? Now, now here's, here's what we do know. We, in our culture today, in our generations today, are not unlike those of the past, but we are always drawn to sensational stories. We're drawn to those. If people were not drawn to sensationalism, then those, those newspapers and magazines that are in the grocery store checkout racks would not exist. We don't even care if they're true as long as it's sensationalized whether it's a television news program or, or something on social media, we're drawn to these kind of odd, strange stories. And, um, and yet, here, here's something that, that leads to this question as to while we're gathered here as Christians at this church today and those that are joining us online, those in the room, why do we care what the story has to say? What does this have to do with us? Here, here's something, just, just to put in the back of your mind, just to remember whenever you're in a life group, a study group, a home Bible study, 
or your church or whenever you're hearing a Bible study taught, there, there are really three things you need to ask. There's really three things you need to cover. You need to make sure are covered. And, and if you're sitting in a classroom and the teacher is presenting a, a lesson, you need to, to listen closely to make sure they present this lesson. If they don't, ask the questions to get those answers there. And I know that kind of puts our teachers a little bit on edge, but we need to be prepared for this. First off, we need to ask this question. When we read a passage of Scripture, we need to ask, what did this mean back then? In other words, what did this mean in the historical context and the time and the place when it was written? In the Near East, in the Middle East, in the first century when this took place or any other story that you read in the New Testament, there is a context that matters. And, and it does us great harm to ignore that. And it's, I know some go, I don't like history. I didn't ask you. I'm just telling you, you need to know this. You don't have to know it in depth necessarily, but you have to have an understanding. What did this mean then? But if you stay there, then it is nothing but history. So there's a second question that needs to come up, and that second question is what is in the Bible study, whether it's a children's study, a youth study, adult study, whenever you're doing this, or sitting around your living room just with your family doing family worship, the second question is what is the timeless principle that is true for all people, all times, and all circumstances? Because there will be one, for there is one. If the word of God is living and true and without error is immutable and is there for us, then we need to understand that God has put timeless principles within his word that are understandable for all people at all times and all places, whether they be in a tribe in the deepest, darkest parts of the, of the African continent or whether they are in South America or in China or in the Far East, whether in uh, 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 Dubai or in Europe or here in the United States, there is a principle that is unchanging. Second question. What is the timeless principle? What is it that God is revealing to us through this? Which leads to the third question. The third question is, how does that timeless principle affect me today and what do I need to know now? See, the problem with our, our, our kind of our westernized, Americanized Christianity is we skip one and two and we go right to three. I read a Bible story and I want to go, why do I care? Why do I need to know? What does this do for me? And if we're not careful, what you really are seeing is, is the, the, the infiltration of a self-help movement disguising itself as Christianity so that every Bible story we read, we read with these eyes and these ears going, why do I care and why do I need to know and how does this help me today? See, see the self-help mantra is real and it's big and it's, and it's infiltrated in so many different areas. And so we're focused on self-care and and, and, and self-worth, and, and self-esteem, and, and self-focus, and, and there's, there's a place for all of that, but when you look at the Word of God, and you look at the depth of what God is giving us in Scripture, the, the primary phrase that comes out of that, that begins with the word self and a hyphen, is self-sacrifice, right? And so, so when I'm looking at the teaching of the Word of God, I'm going, well, this is an interesting story. There's these demons here, and there's this guy with magic hankies, and there's this thing going on with naked people and book burning. That's what happened then. And if you're not careful, you're going to miss the timeless principle and think it's about book burning, or you're going to think it's about exorcisms, or you're going to think it's about something that's not about. While it is about that, that's not the primary timeless principle. So now we jump over to 2021 here in America, post-pandemic world, trying to figure out how to do life. What does that have to do with me? Because if I can't figure that out, then church is continually boring to me because it's just a bunch of stories that I can't figure out why I need to know. But see, here's the great thing about the Spirit of God, and here's the great thing about what God does, is He never wastes our time by our time spent in the Word. We just got to have open eyes and open ears to say, God, what are you trying to say to us? 
What do I need to know? So what we're looking at here, if you go to verse 20, there's a primary verse here, and I want us to hold on to this. I want us to look at this verse and verse 20 at the end of that section as the one that everything of this, all of this leads up to. And if you're going to look for a primary key verse, this would be it. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I mean, that's the goal. I mean, I mean, First Baptist Church of Orange Park is in a time of crisis of belief. I mean, call it what it is. We got more pews than people. We got more parking spots than cars. We're in the old part of the town. The town has changed. The town has gotten older. We're, we're, we're trying to reach our community. We recognize we're in an older part of Orange Park. New move-ins aren't necessarily coming around here, though some are, and it's just a different world. Some of us are actually, unfortunately, are still living like it's 1995, but it's 2021, and we've got to figure out what does this mean for us today. I mean, I mean I'm excited about what God has for us in the future, but that means we can't live in the past if we're going to get there. But we must learn from the past. See, there are some great things ahead of us. You know my goal in life right now? You know my goal in ministry? I've been here... I posted a picture. Oh, yesterday was National Daughter's Day. I figured it out late at night, so happy Daughter's Day. Um, so I'm scrambling for old pictures, and I posted a picture of, of my daughter Ashley, and I, I think you were like three months old, right? And so uh, thankfully, Terry Simmons, he's not in this service. He was in the first one, but he came in and said, hey, I saw that picture you posted. And he said, man. I said, yeah, yeah, what do you think? He goes, wow, you were young and skinny. <laughs> yeah, I know, because it was a long time ago. Who said I had dark hair? Who said that? <laughs> this is not an interactive, uh, uh, you know, you can type, go online, you can type a question, I'll ignore it there, but don't say things out loud, that'll throw me off. Um, but things have changed since 1994. I mean, a lot has changed since 1994. We can't keep trying to live like it's 1994. I mean, th th there are things that are going on, but here, here's why I look at this verse. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I'm excited about that because I believe with my whole heart that the word of the Lord has prevailed and will continue to prevail if we will just, as I said last week, be in the way and not get in the way. You see the difference? We need to be in the way, as the scripture defines Christianity as the way, and not let our structures and our way we do things and all of that get in the way. So what's my goal as pastor now in 2021? Man, here, here's one goal. I don't want to be the last pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park. Unless Jesus comes, then I don't care who's the pastor after me. But we've got, you know, I told you, we've got the patio. You ever seen the patio? The patio. We built it in the middle. We have the weirdest campus ever, I know. But right in the center of our campus is a patio with all these little bricks. And these bricks were sold to church members to get engravings on them so you, we could pay for the patio. That's why we did it. And, and there's all these pictures, all these little bricks of all these little pastors. You know, Pastor so-and-so was here from this year to this year. Pastor so-and-so this year to this year. Pastor so-and-so this year. And I'm on there, and it is the creepiest thing in the world because it looks like a tombstone. I mean, it really does. David Tarkington, pastor, and it has the year and a dash. And I'm like, God, <laughs> creepy, creepy. Um. But I look at that, and I, and, and, and I get a lot of thoughts that come to mind when I look at that. The first thing, and I've shared this with you before, is that God really revealed to me that in, a, in the grand scheme of things, you know, and most of you recognize this, I did not plant this church, um, 1921, but um, God has allowed me and has called me, and you have affirmed that, and I am serving you as your shepherd, as your pastor here in this role for since 2005 in the role of lead pastor since 94 on staff. 
So I've been here a long time, back when I had hair, thanks, and dark hair. But um, one of these, <laughs> I look at that and I like, I mean, there's going to be a pastor after me someday. This is not, I'm, I'm not going to resign today. I just want you to know there's going to be a pastor, I hope, after me someday. But while my brick is still there with a dash, I want to make sure that we are a church that is not trapped in the past, not lamenting the present, but are seeing, seeing the word of the Lord continue to increase mightily and prevail. There is, there, there's going to be a future First Baptist Church of Orange Park that none of us will be a part of if the Lord tarries. But if we're faithful today, there will be. It'll be an amazing moment. And um, I don't know, another, it was a Pink Floyd that sung, I'm just another brick on the patio. Was that them? Something like that. Nevertheless, I shouldn't use those references. So the word of the Lord continued to increase. Let, let, me, let me just say, before the word trending became a trend, and before we started using the word viral, before, we're really not using that now that there's a pandemic, right? Probably not the most appropriate term to use. Man, it went viral, isn't everything. But nonetheless, here's what I found to be the case in the scriptures. Before the internet, before hashtags, before trending items, the gospel of Jesus Christ was spreading like wildfire from person to person, to city to city, to nation to nation. No respecter of skin tone, heart language, religious background. God was going after everybody. And here's the good news. He still is. He still is. God was pressing forward through his people, through his missionary, through his pastor, through his disciple to increase the talk, the message, and the gospel among the people. Then it says to prevail mightily. And, and I like that, that word prevail mightily. I don't know, that little phrase, it just sounds like it just is, is saturated in power. There's power in the word of God. Let me just help you understand something. There's no human being that can, can generate that kind of power to see that kind of trend, trend. We in our creativeness can't be that creative to get the gospel everywhere. We can be obedient in the creativeness God has given us, but we've got to be very careful that we're not out um, trying to outplan God and orchestrate his creative movement. I, I grew up in a Baptist world, in a church world, where we used to have these week-long revivals. Some of you remember those, where we would call the professional evangelist in, and he would preach from Monday through Friday. And, and it was always weird to me, even as a kid, because I'm sitting there going, how do we know it's going to be a revival? See, you really don't know if it's a revival till after it's done. But we would always advertise it as we're going to have revival. My point is, if you know you need revival, why don't you just go ahead and get revived rather than schedule it three months later? I don't know, but that's just me. I was a teenager. I, I just thought things like that. I'm sure that's not right. But in the pastoral Christian world, I don't know if you knew this, but a lot of these evangelists would send ahead plans and, 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 and notebooks, three-ring binders. Now it's all downloadable PDFs, I guess. But they were all orchestrated, and they weren't necessarily bad, and they weren't sinful, but there was a plan. If you want to see revival take place in your church, then here's the three-ring binder. Get yourself like 20 committees and organize yourself to the nth degree so that when Monday comes of the revival, the crowd is full, the, the, the building is full, and the, and the movement is taking place, and we're, we're planning it, and we're preparing for it. And I know we should be praying for it, but there is this problem, see? There is this problem that, that we seem to sometimes think that if we just get all the ducks in a row and get all the, all the dots on the I's made and all the T's crossed, and if we're obedient to just be very, very organized and pre-planned out with our committees and our structure, then God will do what we tell him to do. 
But movements of the Holy Spirit are rarely planned ahead, at least by us. In fact, if you've ever experienced something like that, you, you know it's something unique, and you know it's something special, and you know it's something that, it's when you, if you ever go to church and you can't wait to leave, the Holy Spirit probably wasn't working on you. But if you ever go to a service, or you're in a gathering, you're in a home Bible study, and all of a sudden it's been hours, and you're like, wow, it just feels like we've been here for a few moments, then something is much deeper going on within you. What happens, though, in Christian life, and especially in our, in our culture, is when we have those rare experiences, we try to replicate them by just doing the same thing next time so the same thing happens. But that's not how this works. See, our goal is to be obedient in this so the power of God will work mightily through us at those moments as God has orchestrated this. Long before man began to discover ways to get messages shared beyond one location, before multi-site, before streaming, before online, before all of that happened, God was already at work and increasing his work, powerfully displaying his character, and effectively going where those who needed him needed him the most. The gospel is the good news. We know that. We also know it's only good if you hear it in time. We get that. But we have to remember this, and I think this is a big shift for us in our, our whole leadership team. Our staff has been going through a lot of training over the last few months, and it's leading us into some conversations that are necessary. We know the gospel is the good news, but we also need to understand the gospel is more than simply a presentation given to a crowd. It's more than another class. It's, it's more than intellectual knowledge. The gospel is more than a curriculum. It it is more than a set of three points on how to get through the day. In fact, wow, when this this pastor leader uh, said this, it just shook me. He said the gospel was never intended to draw a crowd. Well, that just seems to, what? Because see, in, in our mindset, success in ministry is more people in the room and more baptisms. But neither of those equal disciples. And our calling is to make disciples. And Jesus, when he taught, and if he is the epitome of the gospel, which he is, it's just the thing of the crowds, 5,000 men plus women and children one time, 4,000 men plus women and children the next time. But it, it, from a Western perspective, we would look at the crowd on the side of the hill and go, wow, mega church, great job, Jesus. But if you follow his ministry after that, you recognize that he systematically whittled that down to a group before then it had multiplied and became the church that we know today. The Western world would say Jesus was a failure as a pastor because he couldn't keep the crowd. But what he did do was pour into the disciples who became more than just audience members and became multiplying, replicatable disciples. And then we see Pentecost, and then we see the rest of this take place. And when you recognize the gospel as the heart of what we do, which it is, the heart of who we are and how we live, then you know the gospel is the good news. And it is the good news of redemption to the undeserved, which is all of us. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the blood sacrifice of the Lamb of God, and the resurrection of Christ himself, the Lord of lords and King of kings. See, the gospel is the key, and the gospel is Jesus. So it is in this message, in this person of Christ himself, there is power. The mystery of it all is, why would God let me get in on this? Why would God invite you into his family? That's the mystery. The undeserved who receive the grace that God offers freely. To move us from creations of God to children of God to attenders of a group to family members. And in a world of uncertainty where there are a lot of questions and unsolvable equations, 
and diseases and terrorism and all that's going on that defines our day. God remains the loving, and, I, and some people are hard to see this, but it's true, the loving creator God of all. His hands are not shaking. He is not the God who spun the world into existence, sat back and just watching it play out, though some believe that. That's not the God of the scriptures. He is the God who is very intentionally involved. He is not stepping back. He is not uninvolved. He is present here today in this place. And God will not be mocked, but he will do what we will do to be glorified. And the word of the Lord will continue to increase and prevail mightily. When you look at this passage, some really weird things happen. I'm going to go quickly through this. If you look at verse 11, you see this power through these extraordinary miracles. Let me read this again. God was doing extraordinary miracles. Let me just pause right there and help let you understand. Apparently, there's a difference between miracles and extraordinary miracles. I never knew that. And I'm not trying to be facetious, but that is intentionally in there because the words aren't accidentally in Scripture. So there is an extraordinary miracle taking place here in Ephesus under Paul's leadership. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So this word in Greek that is translated extraordinary miracles literally means miracles not of an ordinary kind, miracles that are so strange that they will draw a crowd, things that you just can't walk by and go, well, that's a trick. It's, it's, it's pausing. People are pausing in their walk to say, what is going on? And this is weird. You know how much weirder it gets? Handkerchiefs? I mean, handkerchiefs and aprons used by Paul, if the people were able to touch them, they were healed. At that moment, I'm going, nah. I mean, really? I've never seen that happen. See, I grew up, again, in a very structured, biblical, church-focused, baptistic life. I like it. I'm not mad about it, all right? Just so you know. So magic handkerchiefs, they remind me, uh, do you guys ever hear of Peter Popoff? Peter Popoff's a TV evangelist. He's about 198 years old. His ears are bigger than my feet. You know, the guy, it, it, I'm not picking on him. I have big ears, so I can say that. But he's a scam artist. He's an evangelist air quotes. He's a con artist on television that late night when you're tired of watching, you flip over to the end of your, if you have cable still and you flip over to those channels, you see him on his commercials selling, selling water for $15 that he's prayed over that you can drink and it'll make you well. He's the same kind of guy, and there are others out there that'll, that if you will send 15 bucks, they'll send you a handkerchief and you'll be healed of your illness. This kind of scam has been going on for centuries, but what's happening here is not a scam. It's a little interesting how this works. It's just, this is not what we are used to. This is not the American ver That is a very American version of, uh, of a matchstick man, of a con artist working his way around using Christ to make money. Fake Pentecostals and fake prosperity gospel hucksters who will send you, you know, and you're like, who sends money to these people? That's what I, don't you ever watch it and go, who is giving, I'll tell you who's giving them money. Like grandmas and grandpas who are sitting at home and don't get out of the house and are sad and depressed. Listen, you can only watch reruns of Little House on the Prairie and Gunsmoke for so long before you start flipping channels. I, I like both of those. That just shows my age, right? So nonetheless, they flip over to this stuff and they go, wow, 
That guy just says, if I had enough faith, I, could, I wouldn't be sick. I wouldn't be feeling like this. And if I just send him $20. So what happens? It's just $20. So they send $20. And they get some snot rag in the mail that isn't going to do anything. So what's the end result? Grandma's still sick. She's out 20 bucks and got a dirty handkerchief. This is reality. So when I read this, I'm thinking, that's just like those other con artists. But this is different. This is not because this is in the Word of God. And here's what we know. Paul is not sitting over here on the side selling handkerchiefs. He's not selling any of this stuff. It's kind of a weird deal. I don't understand it. It's weird, though. It's these handkerchiefs, which are not, not handkerchiefs necessarily. They're, they're, they would be sweat rags that he would use in his work. The aprons are aprons anyone that were in that day would wear when they're working with leather and they're tanning leather. And, and what did Paul do for a living to make money to put food on the table when others weren't giving him donations or bringing him in? He was making tents. So Paul was intentionally making tents throughout the morning hours, teaching in the afternoon, and in the evening hours, working hard. Why? To ensure that no one could categorize him with all the other con artists in the city of Ephesus that were praying on the poor desperate people. So why did God choose to, to turn his old sweat rags and working aprons into some miraculous tool? I don't know. I'll read what one commentary says by Ray Stedman. He mentions this. He says, symbols which God chose to employ in order to underscore the characteristic of the apostle which made him a channel of the power of God. It's in the same way that Moses' rod was a symbol, that stick that Moses had. When he cast it on the ground, it became a snake. When he lifted it up out of the, and held it over the waters, the waters parted. But there was nothing magical about the stick. It's just a rod. It was the symbol of something about Moses, which God honored. So these sweatbands and these trade aprons were symbols of the honest, dignified humility of heart, the servant character which manifested and released the power of God. I don't understand why it worked, but I believe it did. And I don't believe it was replicatable because I don't think you have Paul hiring an associate minister to bring the anvil case full of rags to sell in Corinth at the next stop. I think it's here, in this moment, for this time, for the glory of God, not to be replicated, but it was an amazing thing, not unlike when people would walk through the shadow of, of Peter when they were healed. You know, those stories are there in Scripture. And people say, well, well, I don't know that I can explain those. That's why it's an extraordinary miracle. We don't like miracles. I mean, we do. We want our sick friends healed, and we'd like some miraculous thing. We call things that aren't miracles miracles sometimes. But when it comes to real miracles, we, we like to know. I mean, I, I wonder how that works. And that's the mystery of the gospel. He's not telling us. You just have to believe. So this, an, an amazing, out-of-the-ordinary, unusual miracle takes place to point people to God. Sadly, that passage has been misused by so many for so long that it's hard for us to even read it and go, okay, I believe it. Remember? What's it mean then? What's the principle? What's it mean now? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean now. It doesn't mean God wants you to sell handkerchiefs. It doesn't mean God wants you to send some huckster on TV 20 bucks either. Let's go to the next one. Verse 13, it's the power through unexpected moments. This is, this is a weird moment. There's a lot in this passage that's just really shocking to me. 
Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Anybody knew, did anybody here like know that there was a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists throughout the New Testament did their job? I didn't know that. Apparently there was a whole group of them. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Well, um, when the miracles of God take place, and then they are viewed as simply a means for self-promotion or self-fulfillment, big problems are going to happen. And here's what happened. These itinerant Jewish exorcists were seeing what was happening miraculously. And they jumped on that bandwagon thinking, we can make a dollar off this. The entire concept of demons and what was called in the 70s and 80s, the satanic panic. You remember the satanic panic? You know, because, like, because your kids were listening to Kiss. You remember that when that happened, right? And Motley Crue and all those things and everybody was, was ba- you were backward masking everything and, you know, John Lennon killed Paul and all that stuff. You remember when all that was taking place? Do you not know what I'm talking about? No one knows what I'm talking about? Thank you. All right. I mean, am I the only guy that lived in that world? All right. So, I'm not saying I believed it, but, you know. The satanic panic was huge and it led people to think that spiritual enemies are little more than made up lies now to placate individual fears and uncertainties. Some people saw satanic things or demonic things as play things or something to dabble in. And, and, and our view of evil and Satanism and all of that is, is kind of, I mean, I think it's probably mostly laced with special effects masks from uh, Hollywood movies and images of the exorcist or Damien or those kind of things. And now it's like, eh, spirituality is still out there. I mean, whether it's Doctor Strange or whatever, I mean, it, it's there. It's never really gone away. To disavow the existence of demons and spiritual beings would be to disavow the word of God and to call Jesus a liar. I mean, Jesus dealt with demons. He talked to them. He put them in a bunch of pigs. He addressed them. He acknowledged them as real and accurate. I would hope we would hold to a biblical understanding of the spiritual realm rather than a Hollywood version of it. So that's, that, it is real. But to elevate the dark realm as something just fun to dabble in, you know, hey, I love Jesus, but I'm reading my horoscope and playing with my new age Ouija board or whatever. I mean, just, you know, it's dangerous, I would say, only because it's, it's ridiculous. It's a waste. The seven sons of Sceva had a reputation for dealing with spiritual things in this city. These were Jewish high priest sons, and, and, and it was believed that they knew a secret name of God. And because they knew a secret name of God, they could just find someone who was sick or promote, promote someone as demon-possessed, say the secret name, and now they're healed, and oh, here, take an offering. That's how they made their money. So they confront, confront this demon-possessed individual. And, and make sure you understand this. They don't give a rip about the guy that has the demons in him. They don't care to rescue him. They're focused on the payday. So they come to him and they, they're going to bring their arsenal, right? Their tools. And here's it. In the name of the Jesus that this guy Paul knows, I mean, that, that's kind of like, I, I mean, I don't even know. Hey, do you know anybody famous? Yeah, my cousin once rode a bus with somebody that was in a movie. You don't know him. Therefore, you don't know anybody. These guys didn't know Paul. 
These guys didn't know Jesus, but they're going to use Jesus and Paul as their ammo and maybe their secret name of God if they can. And so they come out to him, and this is what they address these demons within this man with. These exorcists do what many have been doing for centuries. They jump on the bandwagon and use names of those they really don't know, and they believe it's like the one-two punch that's going to take out these guy, this guy, make him pass out. They'll throw a towel over his face, and then they'll collect the money. But that's not what happened. This is, a, you know, you thought it was crazy before. Look at this. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? Then it gets really fun. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, anybody else grow up watching those old Bruce Lee movies? Or any of those martial art things where there's like 20 guys fighting one guy, and you watch it and you go, why do they always fight him one at a time? There's 20 guys surrounding him, just all attack him. I think they might have, but this is, this is the biggest MMA, ankle biting, breaking arms, ripping clothes off. This guy's taking out a group, seven of them. He takes them out. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, he's all over them. You picturing this? I mean, it's real deal right here. Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? Boom, 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 boom. And it's over. It's like naked men running through the street. That's what's happening right there. People always say, hey, don't you wish what happened in the Bible would happen here today? No, I don't really want to see that. I don't want that happening here. I don't want you running down Kingsley. Nonetheless, this is what happened here. And it was an amazing moment. Who do you think you are? Think about that. I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Game over. Out of all of that, let me just say, this story is one, it's not part of the Awana curriculum. I doubt it is anyway. But identity is key, and being known is important. A lot of you know who Jesus is. That's not the question of the day. The question is, does he know you? So we have a lot of head nods, and that's what happened in, in, in American church. We've done this, and it's not bad because teaching is important, but we become teaching institutions of biblical learning. <laughs> I think we need more trade schools disguised as churches rather than universities disguised as churches. Because if all we're doing is filling our head with the latest knowledge about Jesus and what the Word of God says, but not doing the work God has called us to do, we may find ourselves in a situation of, Jesus, I know, but who are you? Oh, I know about Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not what I ask. Knowing about someone and knowing someone are two totally different things. And if you really know Jesus, it's going to show. Because it's going to change how you live. Because it changed how these guys lived. You know, identity is key, and being known and knowing are vital. Paul is known, Jesus is known, but these six, seven guys are not. But they're seeking celebrity. We, we are in a difficult era in the American church where celebrity pastors rule. And a lot of the guys that are celebrity pastors and celebrity Christians don't intend to be. And you don't have to be a mega church guy with a lot of books and 18 podcasts to be a celebrity. You can be a pastor of, a t of 20 to 30 or 100 people. I was listening, our staff was listening to Dave Rhodes, who's a pastor in the Midwest, speak of this. He said, Here, here's the thing about celebrity leadership. Celebrity leadership is the default 
when there is a huge barrier between the leader and the congregation. All right? And I'm going to just say it's real easy to have that barrier. It's easy to hide in the green room. We don't really have a green room, but nonetheless, a green room. To stay distant from the congregation. I like what Dave Rhodes said, though. He said, you know who in his life doesn't consider him a celebrity? And it really is the same for me as well. But in Dave's life, he said his sister doesn't consider him a celebrity. He's a pastor of a pretty large church. And there's a lot of people that respect him and listen to him and like what he has to say. And he's on video and he's on television. He's on radio, he's on podcasts. But he said, my sister doesn't care about any of that. You know why? Because she grew up with me. She knows me. Because we have a relationship that's one-on-one. The cure for celebrity pastor and celebrity leadership is actually being known. (laughs) That's the cure. If you're watching me online today and I'm the only pastor you have and you live like 18 states away, please go find a church in your community. Because I can't pastor you. I'm just a little face on a screen. And if there's always going to be that much distance, you're making the celebrity who's not really a celebrity. But you're creating the distance. And that's partly on me. i got to step off the stage. I understand that. But how can you break that cult of celebrity in American Christianity? Be known. You know why we don't want to be known? Because sometimes we don't think people will like us if they really know us. I know, by the way, that's not just about pastors. That's about every one of us. And hiding behind the Instagram post and the social media feed and the image in our head is going to keep us from really discipling and knowing other people. The last is, oh, I'm way out of time. Power through amazing awe. Look at verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Here's the point. It wasn't extraordinary miracles that brought on this healthy fear of God that led to what these people did. This wasn't some pastor breaking records or CDs or throwing iPods away or whatever, however we would do it now, or burning books out of some protest. That's not what's happening here. These are people so convicted that their lives are not matching up with the God that they claim to worship, that they're getting rid of the things in their lives that keep them from following him well by their own choice, not by any coercion. A coerced conviction is not a conviction. A coerced response is not a real response. A nine-year-old girl wrote a letter to President Grover Cleveland, so that was a long time ago, back when people wrote letters. She wrote this letter to him because she was feeling very badly and she wanted to confess her sin to the president. I am not saying anyone needs to do that. But she felt guilty. She was nine years old. Here's what she did. She had received something in the mail that had a stamp on it, and the stamp was not canceled. It made it through without getting the little lines over it. And so what she did is she steamed the stamp off the letter. Some of you are so young. Uh, Letters are when you get these things. I don't even know how to explain this. Uh, Stamps. It's a historical thing. Look it up. But in the old days, they had these old stamps that were actually stuck on the side, and and it didn't get canceled by the post office. And so It could be used again, and she used the stamp again. But she felt so guilty 
that she finally wrote a letter to President Grover Cleveland confessing what she had done and enclosed the money inside the envelope to cover the cost of the extra stamp, which by then, what was it, like a penny? Maybe? She wrote an apology to him and ended the letter with, and I will never do it again. I don't think you need to worry about your stamps, but I am thinking there's something going on in the heart of this young girl that we could learn from. R. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary about this. He says, her conscience, there's an old term, right? Her conscience was quickened. Her conscience was quickened. Meaning, she couldn't get over the guilt that was overwhelming her for what she knew she shouldn't have done. She felt she had cheated. And it was bad. And so losing hours of sleep and getting upset, and finally, I don't know, maybe her parents said, just write a letter to the president, here's a penny. And she did. Hughes says she sought forgiveness and restitution. In this account in the book of Acts, here's what we see. Eyes were opened and restitution was sought. And the brokenness of the sinner is welcomed by the gracious heart of God who forgives and hopes where hope resides. Did God want all the burned books? That's not the point. What God wanted was for these extraordinary miracles to do exactly what they were designed to do. Not make Paul a celebrity, but to bring glory to God. And when the demon-possessed man takes out the seven false teachers, the people are then awakened to go, so this Jesus stuff's serious. He's not playing games. We can't claim to know him and use him to our advantage for business purposes or whatever. And they were convicted and their consciences were quickened. And they responded with repentance. And all of that took place so that verse 20 could happen. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. See, Christianity is more than just a simple decision. I fear we've done this in church too, that we've made Christianity a decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. Good. Are you? Right? I'm as guilty as the next guy. I get what we, why we do it, you know, especially as Baptists. We, we count our baptisms. Of course, I'm not quite sure how many we have. People say, how many baptisms you had this year? It's always not enough. Never enough. But here's what we wrongly have done over the years. I don't think we've intentionally done it. We as a church and we as evangelicals. But we've turned the starting line into the finish line. Baptism is the starting line. It's the symbol of new birth, born again, birth, baby, newness. That should be a starting line. It should mentally click with us. And we've made it the finish line. Oh, good, we got him baptized. Let's get some more baptized. Because we've turned Christianity in little more than a marketing presentation, eliciting a response so you will buy the product of Jesus. But the scripture says, that that is not our commission. Our commission is not to be divine salesmen and saleswomen of the, the righteousness and the righteous order of, of Christ just so people will say yes and make a decision. Some, I don't know if you notice this. Some people will pray a prayer just to get you to leave them alone. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. And yet some people have been taught wrongly, just pray this prayer, get saved, and all is good. But see, there's this, there's this thing. It's called the Great Commission. 
And yes, we're called to baptize. We're called to lead people to the Lord. Evangelism is the right wing, but the left wing is discipleship. And that plane needs to fly with both of those. And we are intentionally supposed to be journeying along with other believers for a long time. And it's hard in our microwavable society. We like things done quickly and easily. But the disciple-making process is more than clicking the like on a post. It's a lifelong endeavor. It's a messy endeavor. It's a journey of pain that is worth it. And it is never going to take place. Let's make sure you get this, and I'll say it again. Biblical discipleship will never take place in the structure of your Sunday school class as it's formed now. Unless your Sunday school class has four people in it. It's a great presentation of another teaching. And it is needed and valuable. But disciple-making takes place in the everyday. Takes place in your living room. Takes place at the dining room table. Takes place at the coffee shop with a friend. Takes place on the sideline of a soccer game for the kids. Takes place as you do life with others who are trying to do life. As you are known by Christ and encouraging others to be known by Christ, that's how disciple-making takes place. And it's not a curriculum and it's not over in 13 weeks. And I think that's what scares most of us from ever wanting to do it. And so we settle into the classes and we settle for head knowledge and we know a lot about Jesus and we wonder why why doesn't everybody else want to come and hear more about Jesus? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Paul ministered the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Many were rescued, redeemed, and renewed False religion is all about death. It always leads there, but gospel is about life. And if the gospel is little more than a presentation that we make to others, then we're missing what the gospel is. For the gospel is the power that is within Christ himself. Remember that old hymn, There's Power in the Blood? Some of you remember that, Power in the Blood, Power in the Blood. If you grew up in Baptist churches like I did, moving all around, you usually, you may have had one of those music ministers, we did, that tried to put as many powers in Power in the Blood as he could. You know what I'm talking about? There is power, power, wonder, working power. And they go, hey, man, you go, let's do 25 of them. There is power, 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 power. And I'm like, what? No. It's like Machine Gun Kelly over here. I don't know what's going on. Not that one. Nevertheless, there is power in the blood of Christ. The question for you to answer today is, do you know Jesus? The deeper question is this, does he know you? And do you want to be a part of a movement? where the gospel prevails and changes this world. I'm looking, you know, you reminded me, I'm not young anymore, thanks Tim. Let me just say, I'm 53, how old am I? 53. I had to check with my calendar. People say, how much longer are you going to be doing that? I don't know, probably until I die, but let's just say I live a good long life. Let's just say I live to 90. I've already lived longer than I will. I don't have time to waste. I'm not going to let the last few decades be me coasting through cultural Christianity. And I hope you're not either. If you guys are ready to see something happen in Orange Park, let's start, let's start trusting God that it's going to happen. Let's get to work. Father, I pray that you will... Uh, Change us from the inside out for the Christians in the room. Lord, renew us 
in our faith in you. For the ones that, are, that know but are not known, Lord, today may they be their day of salvation. And Lord, for those of us in this room and online today that are just sick and tired of, of business as usual, let us be able to mark this day on our calendar as the day it all changed. As the day that routine became no longer acceptable. As, as the day when uh, we look at the scripture and we saw what happened 2,000 years ago and the principle is that the gospel must prevail when we are repentant and quickened of the sin in our lives and we have not arrived. And when we do that, Lord, then we apply it in our own lives in this way, not so we can see miraculous handkerchiefs and some crazy stories go on and people getting beat up like they did in this story, but so that the gospel will be shown clearly here at 1140 Kingsley Avenue and beyond and that there will be no question that your hand is on this church and that there will be no question that we are backing away from trying to manufacture and market a strategy outside of your will, but we are following solely your footsteps so that we may see change take place. Lord, as we sing this song, I pray, Father, that you will quicken the hearts of those in the room and those that need to make decisions today for you. May they have the power to do so. May they have the courage to do so. And for the believers in this room, Lord, let them leave at the altars, virtually, I guess, whatever they need to leave, so that they may be fully focused on you. Jesus.